0: to them, children of the night, what music they make. Welcome back to Scored to Death, the podcast. The official companion podcast to the book scored to death conversations with some of horror's greatest composers. My name is Jay Blake Fischera, and the book is available from Selman James Press. It features 14 in-depth interviews with renowned film music composers that have made significant contributions to horror and have worked with some of the genre's greatest filmmakers. It is available on Amazon and from other book retailers. The goal of both the book and this podcast is to explore the craft of film scoring and celebrate the amazing composers that do it. Today's episode is part one of a detailed discussion with composer and synth innovator Christopher L. Stone. As a master of sound and music electronics, he created iconic sounds for projects such as the horror cult classic Phantasm and the original Battlestar Galactica and Knight Rider television series. As a composer and electronic orchestrator, his extensive resume spans all genres of both film and television, from Disney's Tailspin and Walker, Texas Ranger, to Swamp Thing the series, the Phantasm film franchise, and memorable collaborations with fellow composer Richard Band on *TerrorVision*, From Beyond, and Prison. We've got a lot to cover, so let's get started. I wanted to maybe start off by talking about your musical background. Like, when did you find that music... And sound was your calling? Uh, how did you go about educating yourself about it?
1: Well, actually, I, I made up my mind that this is the field I want to go into when I was six. My parents uh, were were filmmakers, Andrew and Virginia Stone. They made movies like uh, The Great Waltz, uh, Song of Norway, and my dad actually directed uh, Stormy Weather with Lena Horn. So I was always improvising on the piano and they just kind of cultivated me over the years to go into the field of uh, being a film composer or TV and film and whatnot, and so it just came about kind of like as a, it's a I guess you could say it was a family thing. <laughs> but they also had a, a player piano, it was a Kanabi with uh, with an Ampico player, and I would listen to pieces on it and run run the piano rolls at slower speeds and then stop it and then play again and. Read it again and play, so it's kind of like uh I guess you, you could say the nineteen late nineteen twenties early nineteen thirties version of electronic music that's what really kind of taught me how to play by ear and kind of just play play stuff just by following the keys then it just it just grew from there and then I uh went and I studied in uh, Vienna in the early seventies, and I had a short stay with uh Nadia Boulanger in France and studied with her for a very short time. So, you know, luckily I had parents that had the money to do that stuff. So uh, they, uh, I was able to get a really good classical education. Then my parents split up and then all the funding stopped and uh, and I had to go to work. So uh, I just went and started scoring like ads and things like that while, uh, while I was in Vienna and scoring small movies. And it just went from there.
0: You've worked quite a bit with Richard Band mm-hmm. and he described you as a fellow who's genius when it comes to electronics how did synthesizers and electronics become kind of a passion for you
1: well when i was about nine years old a a friend of the family gave us a a Norelco do it yourself make make your own electronics thing you know it's like like little spring loaded things you put in resistors and transistors i looked at that i went this guy does not know me at all. You know, I mean I was practicing Mozart and stuff, you know. I was like an electronic thing. All of a sudden I noticed a little picture at the bottom. It says, build your own organ. And went, oh. <laughs> so then I went ahead and did that. And then, so then I started getting a lot more interested in, you know, just in pure electronics and actually creating that stuff. And uh so that started my my love for that kind of the. Uh, just just for electronics in general and you know and electronic music got me started on that yeah and then when uh i started scoring you know low budget movies and so on in the in the early 70s i happened to be friends with uh, the director eddie Demetric. he he really liked me and he he bought me an arc 2600 synthesizer says here you know you get going with this and uh and i went oh that's (laughs) you it was a lot of money back then too. It was like it was two thousand dollars in the seventies, but he just did it as, just to be nice. And so I started working with that, and 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 wound up making making a lot of uh, simulated electronic scores for for orchestra because I you know I didn't really have that much interest in electronic music per se. You know, like uh, musique concrète and that kind of thing. I had no interest in that, but I was very interested in the fact that now I had the ability to make strings and French horns and oboes and whatever I needed. You know, to actually do that with a with like a early four track tape recorder for a lot of years I, I was actually making a pretty pretty good living at just doing simulated scores and i already had an, an orchestral training background so the orchestrations were you know kind of a shoe in for me to be able to do that and i did mock-ups and so on and started doing more orchestral stuff with it it's sort of like saying here this is what i can do with electronics now see what i can do with a real orchestra and that's kind of how that grew so it all kind of grew together simultaneously, the electronics and pursuing, you know, the live stuff, the real thing. And uh, one just sort of complemented the other and helped me to actually move into doing more orchestral scoring.
0: Interesting. And how did you meet Richard Band and start working with him?
1: Actually it was through Eddie Dimitrik. He was a, uh, working at uh at, at the same studio as richard ben's uh, uh grandfather was working in and and so dimitri introduced me to, to rick's uh grandfather and you know we then uh grew from there he says hey you know my son wants to you guys get together we did and that's how that started and we also had another mutual friend uh joel Goldstein, the late joel Goldstein, who died about five years ago yeah so I knew, knew Richard from two sources, actually. And this is way back, you know, we're talking 1972, three, you know, around there. And so it, uh, we all kind of worked together off and on, you know, you know between, between the three of us. We'd all three get together quite a bit, actually, uh, you know, Joel Richard and myself. And, uh, you know, kind of like the three musketeers of film scoring, you know. And so that's the story behind that.
0: And so I, I noticed on... Uh... Some of your early credited collaborations with him, film-wise, you are mm-hmm. credited as an electronic orchestrator.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's kind of what I did for him back then.
0: I was hoping you could maybe talk a little bit about like what exactly that is for listeners that may not have a grasp on what an orchestrator does, and then how do you apply that to the electronic part of it?
1: Well, an orchestrator in an orchestral context would take, let's say, like a sketch, like a piano sketch, or or, or maybe a seven-line sketch of the different instruments, and then you take that you fill that into a full on score. That's what a traditional orchestrator would do. In the electronic sense, you'd take things like some basic tracks of like maybe some some piano thing, a few string things, then I would embellish on that and do more, more electronic stuff. And, and it would also involve doing more like purely electronic sounds, like ambient sounds and things like that. You know, laser blazer sounds and so on, you know, which kind of grew from that. Because once you once you've honed down the trick of of learning how to uh, create any pretty much any instrument you want with a few oscillators and filters, then it's not a big leap to go into that to make things like doorbells and sprinklers and yeah. and lawnmowers and things like that. You know, so I started doing a lot of that as a as a development as well. From there, we also did a bunch of like special sounds for things like uh, Big Wednesday, the movie Big Wednesday. You know, sure surfing movie. Yeah, I ended up doing. Uh, um, uh, most of the, uh, the wave effects um, using my using synths and my voice through a vocoder, huh. And so, yeah, they actually brought me down with my gear onto the stage at Warner brothers and, uh, and actually right on the sound stage, started doing sound design before it was called sound design right there on the stage
0: now why would they do that as a simulation instead of the traditional way of going out and just recording a bunch of waves
1: well there were some sounds that were very very difficult to record because you'd have to be on a surfboard oh i see in the tunnel it was particularly in the tunnel Because you know, you back then they they really didn't have wet gear recordings back then, yeah. All they have are big Nagra's, and no one's going to take a five thousand dollar Nagra and stick it on a
0: surfboard and
1: for the best. Hope you don't wipe out, you know. So, but since I had some surfing background, I knew what that sound was exactly sounded like when you're in the tunnel, you know what I mean by the tunnel. It's when you're in the curl, sure, yeah, and the thing okay, in there. So, I was able to really accurately imitate that which would have been pretty it would have been impossible to do with recording back then but it just would have been very 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 impractical yeah so and and you know there were just certain sounds like that like when you wanted to have the exact sound of what it sounded like when you when you really did swish on the surfboard and you wanted it to really go you know really do all that you know you, yeah you're not going to get that from a stock library and and it's again it'd be rough to record that so it's just it just worked out better for me to do it with my gear and my my voice and my gear.
0: I, I have a lot of friends that are kind of gearheads when it comes to this kind of stuff. What gear were you working with at that time? Um, I was working with
1: an AMS Vocoder and a Marshall Time Modulator and a Harmonizer H910.
0: So you record your voice and then alter it electronically.
1: Well, actually, I would do the alteration and the voice simultaneously because you wouldn't be able to do it after the fact because you have to kind of like coordinate the two. Oh, I see. Yeah. Kind of like playing a violin, you know, you, you finger it and, and then go back and on a second pass and do, do the bowing. It doesn't exactly work <laughs> out. You know, you kind of have to do this. So, so you get those <laughs> swishy things. So I kind of do it with my voice and kind of manipulate. Uh, some of the controls at the same time.
0: I read that you also worked on Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Is that true? Yeah,
1: I well, I helped out with showing the guys. I didn't actually end up doing the actual sounds, but I did set up the the settings for how to do that to make uh, all the spaceship sounds and things like that. Interesting. So I was a guy that kind of like uh, showed showed them how to how to go about doing <laughs> it, and then yeah, Steve Katz actually ended up doing the sounds themselves. Once I showed him how to do it. So I kinda like semi cred I'm not credited on the movie for but it's like, you know, I'm the guy that showed that, that figured out how to how to make that work. And actually my, my ARP twenty five hundred was was actually part of the gear that was on the in, in the in the show itself, in the movie itself. When you see that ARP, we you know that uh, the guy's playing, you know, you know, do do
0: do 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 you know, yeah, yeah.
1: You know, and that are that that was actually my synth that we use and used part of that synth actually to make some of the sounds. <laughs> Funny enough,
0: interesting. Yeah, I find uh, the kind of stuff that you do really fascinating because it's very different than a lot of the other people I talk to. In the book, I talked uh, at length with Alan Howarth about. All the stuff that he does, you know, not in addition to all the music he did, but all the sounds of the enterprise that he created. And it's interesting because people don't really think of that stuff as this, like you said, sound design before it was called sound design. People don't really think of that stuff as music, but in a lot of ways, you kind of have to approach it the same way.
1: Yes, in every way.
0: Now, with Richard, Ben, you've worked on some, you know, Richard has worked on a lot of weird projects, but you've worked on some... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> With Richard on some of his most interesting projects Like uh, Terror Vision and From Beyond uh-huh. I find the Terror Vision score Which I unfortunately haven't didn't have a chance to talk to Richard about But I, I love the retro kind of 50s Sci-fi feeling of that score <laughs> assume that uh, a lot of those tones were your responsibility.
1: Yeah, well we kind of did that together in my studio, you know. Uh, it was it was uh it was definitely a collaboration.
0: You are credited as co-composing the prison score with Richard.
1: Yeah, that's true.
0: Yes, we did. I would love to get kind of your perspective of working with him on that score cuz he describes the situation as Basically, you guys sitting in your studio and kind of improvising the whole thing.
1: Yeah, that's accurate.
0: I assume you guys watch the movie. And do you guys go through the movie kind of scene by scene and improvise? Or do you guys find specific points, the, like the highlights of the film in terms of what you're going to do thematically with the music and then kind of branch off from there almost like tent poles? Uh, if, you could, if you have any recollection, how did you guys approach that?
1: Well, just as you described. Um, you know, you, you start with a few key scenes and then, you know, you, you you fan out from there, you know, taking the themes and, you know, I think we start off with the main theme. And then we kind of use that vibe in different different spots yeah we, we, you know it, we you know, we say improvise you know you got to understand that that when you're writing electronic well there's there's two ways of doing it electronically okay it, 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 and it, there's two different kind of schools of doing this one is you got one group of composers well okay let me, let me stop why use electronics and when use score and the answer to that is budget <laughs> all composers would rather work with a real orchestra all the time anyway no one no one says oh i know i'd rather i'd rather imitate an orchestra with with synths than use the live thing no the reason why you do it is because uh, the film company doesn't have the budget for you to go out and record a large enough orchestra to where it would make sense you might be able to get a few players but then the theme would sound really rinky-dink so in order for it to have scope in order for it to sound big you either have to Do the whole thing electronically or maybe maybe have a few live instruments in there to give it what we call point, you know, so that you can have, you know, you can pick out some of the live playing, especially when it comes to slurs on violins and so on. So I lost my train of thought trying to think, where where is I going with this?
0: Well, Richard talked about why the decision to go completely synth was budgetary and also time constraints. Yeah,
1: well, they're 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 both kind of one and the same, and yes, both yeah they're both true. But when you when you say imp, when says improvise, uh, any any time you're going to do electronic score, you can either be the kind of people. Who, I, I kind of divide composers into two different categories. There's the methodical and there's the visceral. They're two different worlds, two different brain halves, two different personalities, two different composers. They can end up with the same result, but they're very different approaches. So there are some people that will write things out on paper first and then try to realize that electronically. Okay. Those are the methodicals. You got the viscerals, which will look at the score, do one line, go back and improve it and go on and so forth. So it's, it's, and, and I guess you could say that's improvisation, but it's not, imp, it's not pure improvisation in that you just play the first thing in, in, in a true improvisation, you play it once, and whatever it is, it is, and you're done. That's an improv. When you're working, when you're doing it line at a time or, or, or chunks at a time, electronically, you, you you don't just lay it all, you just, just don't lay down one line and away you go. You, you, you practice with it and you think, oh, this line works better here, yeah, that works better here. And then you you kind of more or less do what you would do on paper, only you're doing it directly to a tape recorder in those days, it was, it was of course it was a tape recorder. So it's not it's not improv in the pure sense of the word. It's it's a kind of a another way of writing without using paper.
0: I see. What gear were you using at the time? Cuz he talked about you were do it, you were using the wave frame? Yes.
1: Back then there was a battle going on between Sinclair and oh god there was one other
0: Fairlight maybe?
1: Fairlight. Oh, there we go and then Waveframe wanted to throw their hat in the ring to be to be another one of these like $100,000 systems because that's what it took back then because it was like the price of a house for a gigabyte of ram. So everything everything was done on, on a single or a Waveframe or, or any of those other things back then, you know, can now be done on your iPhone, but back then you needed $100,000 to pull it off. So yeah, I was working with Waveframe helping to develop their sound library and it was a very short-lived company because it was just it, got, it, it came in too late into the game. Em, emulator came out with their emulator 2, and that just blew uh, out all the $100,000 systems just overnight became dead weights. So what we were using was a waveframe, and for a tape recorder, I had a Soundcraft 24 track, a two inch 24 track yeah, uh, for the tape recorder, and I was using a Sony, small Sony console. And uh, the usual outboard gear, you know? Sure. Had a few plate reverbs, a couple of those. And that was pretty much it.
0: Yeah, I mean, what I find really interesting about that score is we're looking at eighty-seven, eighty-eight, And that score has, for the most part, the vast majority of it has a really kind of organic orchestral feel to it. And I was just kind of really impressed to find out that you guys did that all in studio with synthesizers and stuff.
1: Yeah, a lot of the samples that uh, that we use, in fact, most of the samples we used were samples that I recorded myself in uh, Yugoslavia uh, back then. And in the early days of sampling, it was being done very catch-as-catch-can. People would kind of like, you know, do a half-assed job recording. wasn't usually done by people that were real bona fide recording engineers. And they, you know, tried to sk- script together, you know, students and so on. In those days, it wasn't. There weren't, weren't big scoring sessions for sample libraries like like we have now. You know, now it's a massive production. Yeah. And back then, it wasn't. So I really kind of was doing some of the kind of recording techniques, you know, recording with larger groups uh, that would be more commensurate with, say, the late '90s, early 2000s, when that kind of thing started to become more prevalent.
0: Sure. Now, when you say record, going out and recording your own samples, like what specifically would you record? I mean, obviously, you're you're saying you had players and they would play, mm-hmm. and you would record them. But like, what would you have them play to sample? Would it be like note by note or chords? Yeah, one note by note.
1: You yeah. know, yeah, one note at a time. Duh. Next sample. Duh. Next sample. Duh. Yeah, you want to blow your brains out in sample <laughs> session. Trust me, it is the most boring boring thing you could ever be really just it's alacious. it's even worse for the musicians <laughs> yeah so you have to be really you know you have to be kind of conscious of them because people that don't know what they're doing when they go to sample brass for instance they'll have to spend hours and hours recording fortissimo way up high on the instruments and they blow their lips out and they can't understand why they're not getting a good sound so you have to, you have to kind of like Move your move the notes around quite a bit for them, so that they they're not always blowing them, blowing it out. Same thing with the strings; you don't want to be recording way up high on the strings for like two hours, you know. And they're playing on on the first string, like right up by the by the bridge. Yeah, you know, fingers are going to get bloody by the end of the day. So as part of the recording of samples, you have to be conscious of the fact that these are human beings playing these things, and you've got to really take their physical fatigue. And what, fat- and what does fatigue them badly, you know? yeah. Uh, and you have, to be, you have to be very conscious of that when you're doing sample libraries.
0: When Richard approached you to work on prison, you guys had been working together a lot around that time. Was it, when it no matter what the project was, was it at that point almost a given that you, he would kind of work with you uh, around that time period? Or was it specific because of the, the money and stuff that he came for your expertise for this particular project?
1: Oh, it's it's pretty much because of the money, you know. If you need if you need if you need good synth work, it'd be done cheap, you know. <laughs> but compared to compared to an orchestra, you know, you know, if he was going to do something purely orca- orchestral, that I wouldn't be involved in that at all.
0: Yeah, but even stuff like From Beyond, where he was working mm-hmm. with an orchestra, you know, you were mm-hmm. definitely a part of it, and you know, the the synth plays a very important aspect to a lot of Richard's early stuff because of the way he marries the two.
1: Yeah. Well, again, it comes down to budget. So what you do is you record, you know, some of the big bombastic stuff. You, you get to get together like a session or two uh, with with a big the big orchestra, so that you you can intersperse the live orchestra stuff with stuff that that doesn't have quite the dynamics mm-hmm. and things you can pull off uh, electronically. You'll do, you'll do it that way, and then sometimes you'll just take pieces of the orchestra parts and enhance them and add synth on top of that to fill them out. It's kind of a patchwork. Sure, it's doing a quilt really.
0: Do you have any specific recollections of working on the prison score? specific pieces I mean you said you remember starting with the main theme but I was just wondering if there's anything interesting about those sessions you can share
1: yeah well I mean I mean, I remember one cue particularly that we spent a lot of time on and I it was a it was one where during a like a prison escape I think it was climbing up through the prison bars on the outside. I remember. I haven't seen the movie since, uh, <laughs> since we finished it, so I'm just trying to remember. But that particular cue turned out really great. That was one of the ones that we spent a lot of time on. Uh, not, that we, not that we rushed everything, but uh, we didn't. We, but that kind of established the tone of how we were going to handle the rest of the score in terms of uh, sophistication level, mm-hmm. you know, how much, how much granularity, you know, you, you want to put into the score. You know, when you have time constraints, it's just like painting, you know. If you have, if you have to put out a tremendous amount of music, then you, you kind of have to take the approach of, you know, those guys that you see on TV sometimes that paint, and and, uh, and they'll show, oh, now I'm going to show you how I can do this whole landscape in 60 seconds and right before your eyes, they get, the, they get the sunset going with the big fat brush, and then they'll come in and they'll do the trees really fast, you know, and he, yeah. these little snow things on there. And, and then the guy just turns around, and there you are. There's, there's the picture, and you, you see it. And it looks really, really cool from a distance until <laughs> you get really close up, and you see that it's really – it's not that it's sloppy. It's just that there's not a lot of granularity in there, you know. It's done for effect. It's done so that you take one look at it, and you think, wow – that's really cool. And then you take another picture that's done by by a really famous artist doing these things in oils. That might be another landscape, and you look at it. Now you get a little bit closer up to it. Now you start seeing individual leaves. You start seeing, you know, a, a lot more detail close up. That's what I mean by granularity. Yeah. So there's always that when you're working on it. It's not so much a budget as it is a time constraint. The composers are always given the scores at the absolute last possible second. And we're not talking budget here. It's just doesn't matter what the budget is. You're always given it the last second because they're always working on it in the editing room until the deadline absolutely comes, you know, for the dubbing session where they put the music and the sound effects and everything together. So they'll railroad you right into a corner compositionally for that. They won't take your time into consideration. Because, you know, they're the creators, you know, so they create all this stuff and take as much time as they can possibly squeeze out of it, which is understandable. So now you have to fight and battle between, okay, you cannot give high granularity to absolutely every scene like you can with a very large budget movie where a composer could have months to work on it as opposed to days. Yeah and even in high budget movies sometimes they don't they don't give the composers enough time on those either in which case like the guys have to farm it out and try to get granularity in there by having more more bodies working on it and and that's when they really depend a lot on the orchestrators to throw in the granularity you know all the fine little sophisticated bits that fill in all the broad strokes What i mean by that i mean i'll give you a perfect example like let's say you're going to do something like you know you have a little action theme and so you might sketch something out that goes like that kind of thing. Right. So when you want to put like granularity in there, now what you might have is you might have the woodwinds going, and then have a lot of percussion things and all those little, little things that add sophistication to it. That's the That's what I mean by granularity. Yeah. And that's time consuming more of the notes the longer it takes to write them so you you know the you can always tell when somebody's like really in a hurry because you start getting less and less and less granularity and more more long notes <laughs> you
0: know yeah it,
1: it takes less time to physically do them whether it's on paper or whether you're playing electronically yeah interesting
0: now uh did you also work on the battlestar galactica tv show
1: Yes, as a matter of fact. Again, I created the, the sounds for uh, the Cylons, and I was called down on the sound stage again, only this time at Universal. And I brought my gear, which was my, you know, the, the same stuff, the AMS vocorder. That was kind of my standard kit for doing stuff with my mouth, which was the AMS vocorder, the uh, Marshall Time Modulator, and the Harmonizer H910. So they had me come down to the stage, and I, I was I was there with everybody, it's, you know, like a whole entourage of people, you know, with Glenn Larson I was there, and, and in fact I met Glenn Larson later just before he died a couple of years ago, and uh, we were talking about it, and he had vaguely remembered me, <laughs> you know, but uh, like, yeah we were there, and, I and so we sat down, and I created the sounds, I got up there, did the microphone, did the whole thing, and they had another guy come in and read. The actual, you know, by your command, but it could have been, frankly, it could have been a Google Voice. You know, it wouldn't matter because it was actually the equipment that was making the noises.
0: By your
1: and so I, I did. The, I created the patches. and did the did everything ready for so anyone else to come in and read it and do it. But yeah, so that's how I worked on it. Let me see what else. Oh, did the, the same thing on Pete's Dragon. The exact same thing. I came in, created the sounds for that wasn't a Vocoder back then i was using some other things and again i was down at the stage at disney and we did that sound there with don blue and his group and uh had someone else read it so you can say i worked on it i didn't actually do the voices but i created the sounds for the voices interesting oh yeah the one thing one thing which i definitely which I, was which was all me which was the the cylon you know that the cylon uh sound where their light goes okay that's me (laughs) that's that voice that's it and what I do is I put it through a Marshall time modulator so it will go like that so I kind of like that
0: this was the like the light in their in the eye of their helmet
1: Light right in the head yeah which then when larson he said oh i really like that sound so we used it in the kit car so they just took that and they put it in the kit car and slowed it down so
0: <laughs>
1: but that's that's it was, it was used in two spots
0: so you created the the sound of the the, the light in front of kit's car that my generation of of people grew up kind of imitating themselves. <laughs> that's
1: correct. That was all me. Just like the, the, the some of the wave sounds in uh, Big Wednesday were all me. That was somebody else coming in, just using my gear. So that's uh, yeah. That was that's always one of those little fun things to to remember. And I stayed in a closet. Actually, they just they sent me over a three quarter inch cassette, and I was went down to a little closet, literally in in Hollywood, at uh, Audio Rents. Went in there and said, Here, just knock out a sound for this, Way Chris. And I went, Okay, sure. So I did that. You know, I wasn't paying anything for it. They, they just asked me to do it. Back then, again, there wasn't sound design. You know, and, you know if, I'd, if I'd had my wits about me, I would have gotten my SAG card. I'd be getting like thousands of dollars. <laughs> so that, I never did because I didn't know to do that. So,
0: was that the point where those kinds of things were being called special sound effects?
1: Yeah, probably. I don't know. Yeah. I, I was too ignorant at the time to even know about <laughs> any of that. You know. I said, no, well, I'm a composer. I'm not a sound effects guy. So, you know, I, it, was, it was a freebie. But <laughs> it ended up being a world-famous freebie, but it was, that's what it was. But um, there you go.
0: And how did you become part of the Phantasm franchise?
1: Well, the sound effects editor on the first one was the assistant editor for my mother, who was the editor on my dad's movies, Gene Corso was his name. And he called me up and said, hey, you know, I know you do this electronic stuff. You want to come in here and do some sound? So I did it on the first one. So I, I created the sound for the, for the dwarves on Phantasm. Ah! And there were some other, like, little creatures and things like that that I, that I also created some of the sounds for, and buzzes and stuff and Don Costarelli you know liked me back then and so on so then and I got to meet I met Fred Miro at the time who's now been gone now for almost 20 years now I think wow and so when it came time to do the second one again budget constraints he knew I could do electronic things and I came into the same thing like I was doing for Richard you know to come in and do electronics stuff on the second one then uh after that uh, Fred passed away and then I ended up doing all the rest of the Rest of the scores myself.
0: When you see the first Phantasm for the first time, mm-hmm. what do you think about it? Because it is one of the most oddly imaginative original horror movies, especially for that time period.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, uh, uh, okay. it's kind of like, you know, like they have lost memory how you really never quite understood what all those smoke creatures were and everything was all kept very hush-hush in the whole show about the origins of it and what everything was what made phantasmatically different is you mm-hmm. never had a clue as to where these creatures come from what are they all about whether there's something very intriguing so it made it a very intriguing thing you kept waiting for the next installment to hopefully find out who and what they really were and what they come from what was their origin you know, like you do in most horror movies it's pretty obvious you know you've got you know, okay, you've got your your uh, your apocalyptic zombies, right? Okay, it was a uh, let me guess, a uh, government experiment gone bad. Boom, there you go. There's the reason for it. You know right away, right? Yeah. In Phantasm, you have absolutely no clue. Still to this day, you really don't have a clue. <laughs> yeah. And and it's that I think is is what makes makes them so compelling, is that they're so bizarre and the movements and the things that goes go that that he does like those balls that go out of the air and so on you know you have no idea where they come from what motivates them why are they doing all this what's going on what's the ultimate goal you have no idea you just know that you gotta they've got to be stopped you know so uh reggie has to go out there and and kill them all and hopefully that'll be the end of it of course it never is thankfully and so on
0: so for the first film you did basically some sound effects and the second film you started working directly with fred myro what was that collaboration like
1: it's very similar to working with with richard and you know in uh, richard In that you know come to my studio we would sit we talk about it you'd play something i'd play something we'd come back where that set some sounds up for him he'd play those sometimes i would do them it was kind of like how richard and i worked as well very similar
0: that melodic theme has become a favorite of cult horror movie fans And there's something that a lot of the composers talk about that there's something to simplicity when it comes to horror movie scores. Uh, would you say that there's something to that? And if you agree, do you have any thoughts as to why something simple seems to be most effective when it comes to horror?
1: Oh, it's very simple. Yeah, you know, I, I totally agree with that statement. If you can hum it, you know, you know, you've got something that people can walk away with, you know. And and then when they hear that sound, you know, it's like do do doo do do doo do doo do do doo I mean, you know immediately what's going to happen, you know. And then the Phantasm, da da di da di da 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 dee da di de, da, de, da da, da, da. boom boom boom. You know, you know what's coming.
0: <laughs> uh, you worked with Fred on two and three because he passed away after that. When you then take up the mantle for four and five, working on a series like that, do you find that it's restrictive to kind of keep working within the same with the same elements, or is it interesting to find? new ways to work within that musical language?
1: Well, I don't find it restricting at all. It's kind of like coming home to a familiar old friend. First of all, I really love, I I mean, I'm not saying this just just to say it, I really love Fred's themes that he did for that, you know, and and the way he interwove them, because you could use them in so many different ways without it becoming monotonous. And it was well-constructed. I thought, you know, his themes were very, very well constructed and I always look forward to, you know, to doing them. You know, I would, I would be thrilled if Don ever put together a series, you know, that if I had to work on the themes every week, fine, fine with me. No, in fact, I find it, I find it fun because with every decade, you know, those things come out. I, I, what I do is I try to incorporate whatever is the current scoring trend to try to put that in as part of it while maintaining the core essence of the original. And uh, so, you, you know, you're not, you're not busting the genre by suddenly going with a whole different thing. What I like about that series too, is is, is it doesn't take yourselves too seriously.
0: Yeah.
1: It's not one of these, uh, I mean, I mean, they know, they know, they know it's horror. It's almost like comical because it's so horror, you know? <laughs> and uh, I think that's part of the charm of it, you know, is it's not, It's not an ultra, you know, heavy, serious. There aren't a lot of bad guys with British accents. You know, I'm a Shakespearean actor, dammit, when I'm (laughs) going to do this horror movie.
0: (laughs) I think movies that have that tone tend to benefit from having scores that often... Go way over the top. And I imagine oh, that yeah. must be very fun to to do.
1: It's a lot of fun not not having to be one of those situations where you have to be, well, no, I can't do too much of that. No, no, we gotta tone that one back. We've got to tone this one back. It's nice to be able to just to just go for it. It's much, much, much easier on your nerves not having to strike these um, happy mediums, you know, you just, you just take it and you run with it and go.
0: And what's, uh, what's it like working with Don Coscarelli? Like what, what is his method of communicating what he needs to you?
1: Well, we don't have to do an awful lot of talking at this point, you know, Uh, (laughs) the way, the way I work, way, way I'm doing it with him. And now, uh, you know, is I've kind of changed my, the way in which I work quite a bit than the way I did, 20 years ago. Now when I write, I take a very, very, very different approach. That different approach is I'll look at the show, look at the movie. We'll talk about the different scenes, the different moods and so on. And then what I'll do is uh, I sit down and I spend a week or two or whatever long it takes for me to do it. And I do themes without picture. Just write the themes yeah. and write how I think they're going to, how, how And i Fully orchestrate them electronically, of course, you know, and really put all kinds of detail into it, right? A lot of granularity, which sometimes when you're watching picture and you want to try to do a lot of granularity with picture, the dialogue gets in your way, the visuals are distracting. There's a lot of stuff that can, can actually work against you working with picture all the time and you tend to fall fall into some bad habits, actually. Uh, going for stuff that you've always done in the past because it's less distracting. So if you leak working with a blank slate, you see the picture in your head and you write for the picture as opposed to writing to the picture. Yeah. You can then spend the time putting in the granularity. And sometimes you have to take that out for dialogue and so on, but at least you've got it in there. So you've got it as an arsenal. So you're creating kind of like a library as it, as it were. So, I actually before on the last one we did, Phantasm Five, before before I ever actually scored anything to picture at all, I already had an hour of music written, yeah. of just pure album material. And then what I did was I just I, I took that, mixed it down to the different elements, and cut it into the picture like I was putting in a temp score, did a reverse temp score, you might say, and then took the parts that didn't work, cut that out, and added new bits in between, and and do it, and did it that way much, much, much better way to work. It's a lot closer to the way people work on paper when they go to write on paper, because when you're writing on paper, you're not looking at the movie. All you're doing is you're thinking about the music, so you can put all this granularity into it on the paper that you wouldn't necessarily be able to do when you're seeing the picture because it's, it's too distracting. So, I mean, I used to just write the picture all the time, and I never wrote a note without it, I mean, especially when I was doing the TV shows, which I always did it that way. And I learned that that's not the best way to go about it at all. Interesting. No. You want to you you try to write two pictures as little as now, – now my philosophy is you want to try to write two picture as little as possible. You only do it when it's utterly apparent that that's the only way you can, you can do it. You don't do it as a general rule. Not anymore, I don't.
0: Well, obviously, with the passage of time and now that you've done so many of them with Coscarelli, you know, how you work with him now is different than you would have worked with him in in 1987, 88. But do you find that the way you guys communicate is different than the way that he and Fred communicated when Fred was still working on the series? Hmm. I have to think about that as someone that loves movies and, and directors as well, you know, in addition to the music, I'm always curious about that director-composer relationship and how it works. Because, you know, obviously it works differently for everybody, but also every picture and stuff. So I always try to get a little bit of a glimpse of, like, what that relationship is like and, and how the communication works between people.
1: Well, you know... It's it's a dynamic process. It's not something that's locked in concrete in every in every show, because e- everyone grows and changes their 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 and learns from their last projects and moves forward. So, uh, you you kind of work a little bit differently each and every time a little bit. Yeah. And I would say that what defines working differently is uh, the the more you work together, the less has to be said, and things can be said in a much shorter period of time. And it can be said in a sentence as opposed to paragraphs and that is the biggest difference is when you're working with someone like like when i'm working with don someone i've worked with three you know many 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 times very little is actually needed to be said and in this last one we did we had like a brief conversation we went through showed, looked the movie and then i came came to him back with themes and we started working started making changes to the actual themes before it went to picture. and We started working, I was just, yeah, I think it needs a little bit more of this kind of vibe, a little more of that, or yeah, I'm having a bit more of this, more of that. So by the time, by the time we came to actually cutting into picture and working with the picture, hardly anything was changed. Hardly anything was, dis- you know, we, we very, very few changes were made. Once I got all the critical elements together, and they said, you know, I would roughly show it against pictures. He said, "Yeah, I want to see what this theme looks like against pictures." So I throw up some picture, we run it there, and I go, "Yeah, let's slide this music a little bit and see how that works here." Oh yeah, that part here. Let's take that and move it onto this part over here. It's it's actually much more akin to to doing a temp score, believe it or not. It's like taking the real score and treating it like a temp score.
0: And this is with a, this is with the Ravager.
1: Yeah, yeah, doing, doing that. I like doing I like working that way. You know, as opposed to. uh you know, taking one little scene at a time now, getting the themes together. Because sometimes I take some of the themes and, hey, you know, we'd look with this 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 last part from this other theme here. You know, we'd go down, you know, through this this whole massive hour of music we had. How about if we use a little piece of this over here, you know? We'll go, okay, fine. Let's take that. we put that put that on that spot and away we went. You know, it's, what's interesting for me, just as a side note, I need to ask this question, but... I went through on all the scenes where there were all the ball effects going through the air and all the, all the dwarves and all that. That was the first thing I did before I started actually writing any music at all. Yeah. Cause I wanted to have that as kind of like background ambience as well as, is it getting it done for the show, but also the more of those sound effects that are in there tells me a lot more about how much granularity I can put into the writing and where I need to eliminate granularity. Cause the more other sounds you have working on the screen, you, you have to really be very careful not to overwrite for those, especially like the chase scenes where the ball's going and there's cars going every which way. You really have to make the music a lot simpler and more defined rhythmically. Sure. And those things.
0: That's interesting. So when you're working uh, just to kind of make sure I understand, so when you're working on a picture where you're working on sound design and sound effects as well as the music. The first pass is all the sound effects and stuff and then you start working on the music to picture. Correct. Much better way to work. Much better. Now, do you find that uh, a lot of projects that you work on you kind of wear both hats or is that kind of a rarity these days?
1: Kind of a rarity these, these days, you yeah. know. It's 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 not you mean, you know, because, you know, the only time that really comes into, a, into play is if you're doing with something that's either a horror movie or a sci-fi. Other than that, it's always going to be done with conventional sound effects, which, of course, I'm not doing. Yeah. So I wouldn't, there wouldn't be any cost for me to do that. So the only time I'm brought in, it was a really, it was a one-time experience doing the big Wednesday thing, it Was a conventional movie, definitely not a sci-fi. It was the one and only time I ever did something like that that had nothing to do with a a horror or or sci-fi genre yeah so the only time i I would ever do the sound effect stuff would be only if it had to be otherworldly you know it had to be either you know off world or or netherworld. world you know uh that'd be the only time i'd ever do that so you know most of my work was not done in that in that genre so yeah it's a rarity
0: Okay, that's about the midway point and a good place to stop for now. I of course need to thank Chris Stone for being part of the show. Please come back in two weeks for part two of this conversation, when we will discuss his work on the Disney afternoon television series, Tailspin, and much, much more. If you've been enjoying the podcast, the book Scored to Death, Conversations with Some of Horror's Greatest Composers is available from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and many other places you buy books. Or you can order a signed copy from me directly. Just contact me through scoredtodeath.com. You can also find and follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at scoredtodeath. Scored to Death. Scored to Death, the podcast, is now available on most podcast apps and distribution sites, as well as on SoundCloud and YouTube. Please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing the show on iTunes or on whichever provider you use to listen to podcasts. My other show, Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers, can also be found on iTunes, Google Play, and most places you find podcasts, and on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Satsleepovers. You can find Chris at composerchrisstone.com. And I should note that the short clips of music used in each episode are used strictly to put aspects of the interview into context, to audibly illustrate specific things discussed and for educational purposes. The soundtracks discussed on this episode were Terror Vision, which is available on CD from Entrada. From Beyond is available on CD from Entrada and on vinyl LP from Waxwork Records. Prison is available on CD from Entrada and on its original vinyl LP from Varese Saraband. Phantasm by Fred Moreau and Malcolm Seagrave is available on CD from Rock is Dead Records and on vinyl LP from Mondo. And unfortunately, I don't believe Chris's other scores for the Phantasm series have been released yet. Thank you so much for listening to Score to Death, the podcast, and please come back in two weeks for this conversation's exciting conclusion.